the whole progression of these purifications are cause and effect. Each cause produces a new effect. And the Buddha usually taught in this manner that one cause produced a new effect. He didn't always say that, but he very often, most of the time, taught in this progressive manner. And in fact, many, many of the discourses start exactly where we find ourselves now in an ordinary consciousness and then go all the way to Nibbana. And so does this one, of course. This happens over and over again. Some of them start somewhere in the middle, but most of them start right at the beginning. And here, when we started, it was all about our virtue and our conduct. If we have followed step by step and have done these purifications, we come to a situation where we see that neither the aggregates nor the elements nor any of the other aspects we know about ourselves are satisfactory. Satisfaction cannot be found within them. And we come to a point in this practice which goes by the name of purification of our knowledge and vision. No longer is it that we need to look at the way or what is not the way, but we have purified our knowledge and vision, our inner realization and our understanding of that realization. We have seen quite clearly that all the material aspects including this body are constantly falling apart they have to be taken care of they have to be cleaned up they have to be refurbished in the case of this body it has to be supplied with food and drink and then, of course, it has to excrete that. Otherwise, it's going to get very sick. And this applies to anything that we can look at in a material way. We have to renew it because it wears out. Now, in the case of this body, we have come to the point in our technology where we're able to supply it with spare parts, which is quite nice, but 
one wonders whether that will help us to understand a little clearer who we are. In the case of our automobiles, we've been putting spare parts in ever since they were in existence. So whatever it is, whether it's a broom or a body, whether it's a car or an airplane, whether it's a house or a carpet, it's got to be cleaned, refurbished, it has to be reorganized, repaired, and eventually replaced. And that, of course, applies to our bodies. They eventually have to be replaced. Not sufficient spare parts anymore, and the whole thing collapses, and then a new body has to be obtained. So we see that quite clearly, and we're no longer attached to the material world. But that's not the whole world, of course. But what happens at that time is that disenchantment sets in. This is a very um, particular term in the Buddhist teaching. Nibida in Pali. And it means that the world with all its temptations, with its beauty and its opportunities, facilities, does no longer exert the pull it has. We don't necessarily have to get any more things than we already have, any new things, anything else, we don't have to see anything more or hear anything new. We know it will not bring satisfaction. That we undoubtedly see and hear things and taste and smell them, that can't be helped because we have those senses which will be operating until this body dies. But we don't go out of our way to get them and when we do get them, they do not produce elation. The disenchantment is a neutralizing. It comes to the point where there is equanimity about the worldly conditions. This disenchantment has a very profound effect because it's the first super mundane quality which we can attain. Everything else has been mundane that we have talked about. This is the first one that enters into the pathway of the super mundane. And, of course, that what this practice is all about is the super mundane. A super mundane which goes beyond our worldly connection and attachment will look exactly the same as before. We just don't feel the same. Disenchantment is our first step in that direction. It concerns the fact also that we have seen that all the 
materiality, corporality, with which I've just spoken, has conditions. There's a condition to make them arise. There are conditions to keep them together. And there are conditions to make them fall apart. And since we have no jurisdiction over these conditions, we're disenchanted by them. Doesn't mean we dislike. Dislike is just the other side of the coin of being attached to. It does not create an ease of understanding which will bring then a step into the supermundane. By the same token, just as the material world does not produce anything that we now crave for, we also look at our mental and emotional world and we recognize the fact that that too is dependent upon conditions. Even the meditative absorptions are dependent upon conditions. Conditions of concentration, conditions of some quiet, condition of actually directing one's mind in that direction. Condition which, while it produces excellent results, is still dependent upon also a fairly healthy body and a healthy mind. These are all conditions over which we have absolutely no jurisdiction. We are still subject to and victims of. And we can see that that cannot be totally satisfactory. So disenchantment sets in with the mental, the emotional, and the material world. And obviously we keep on living in it. And because of the fact that we have not taken a step into the super mundane, we keep forgetting. And again and again, we become elated or depressed by it. But the understanding has arisen that that elation and that depression are wrong view. They arise because of the fact that we haven't paid attention. And we haven't really looked at the progression of the five aggregates and have reacted without paying attention to our impulsive and instinctive habits. If we look at ourselves in that way, we're taking a far more objective stance than anyone would ever do unless he has, first of all, he or she has, first of all, meditated and secondly understood some of the Buddha's teaching and practiced along this pathway. Equanimity is a state of mind which dissolve some of the clinging. That's why equanimity is the epitome of all emotions, the crown jewel of our emotions. Because it's the only one of our emotions 
which actually goes in the direction of Nibbana. That's why it is also the only one of the emotions which is part of the factors of enlightenment. Others are useful tools and we will talk about them this evening but they do not bring us into the vicinity, into the neighborhood. It's only equanimity, even-mindedness which has the quality of detaching detaching from that which appears to be so wonderful or so terrible. It's nothing of the sort. It just is. But without having practiced along this path, we can never just see that. We may have repeat the words, but we won't see it. If we have come to the state of disenchantment, the next progressive step, which is a natural effect, is dispassion. In Pali, that's viraga, and the word, the syllable v is often used as non. It also means seeing, but it's also used, also means non. And raga actually is used in English, raging. The same word. It's not necessarily rage, not angry, it's just raging when the mind is really engaged in getting and finding and becoming and having. And it means that we have a great deal of greed for sensation. which is, of course, the same as wanting experiences, the greed for sensation. It became a cult at one time. Luckily, it no longer is. But because of unknowing, misunderstanding, non-spirituality, one can become convinced that experiences are worthwhile, no matter how they're induced, no matter what kind, just lots of them. Of course, all of them are connected with senses. When disenchantment has set in, naturally, dispassion follows. Disenchantment which means also equanimity, means also not looking for. There's no doubt that the dispassion has to follow. The word dispassion also has a certain quality about it which describes it, but 
It's a bit of a mild word because we don't also, we don't use it much. And that shows already, since we don't use the word much, that we don't use that kind of stance very much. The word passion is far more often used than the word dispassion. Passion is not necessarily anything to do with sex. It just means all our craving for sensation. This kind of dispassion cannot be induced in us through determination. It can only be induced through practice step-by-step practice. And as we practice step-by-step, that kind of dispassion towards sensation necessarily has to come about, otherwise something's gone wrong with the practice. It's either not happened, the practice, or it went in the wrong direction. That's easy enough to do. There are innumerable wrong directions and only one right one. So it's easy enough to get off the path. And since in an affluent society the uh, sense contacts are so innumerable and the justifications for them are constantly being produced, it's very easy to get off on the wrong foot. Unless we can find in ourselves some disenchantment with the material world and some dispassion, even if it's only little, the practice hasn't really taken on yet. It's all right if we notice it. There's no blame attached to any of this. It's a matter of noticing, knowing, and putting oneself back into the stream again. It's also only a matter of introspection, of mindfulness about oneself. When we reach this point of discussion, which of course in the progression of this teaching would denote at this point in time that it has become very strong. We will see with clarity that all conditions are totally unsatisfactory. There isn't a single satisfying condition to be found. And we will also see at that time that all that we know within this world, either through our senses or through our meditation practice has conditions which are constantly coming together and falling apart which means body and mind all of that is conditioned and it is all based on the premise that the continuity of this coming together will eventually satisfy us because it will come together in such a way 
that it's not going to have any impediment about it. Which is such an absurd notion that one wonders how it ever came about. Because everything has been coming together and falling apart for eons. And to our personal knowledge, at least for the time of this life. It's all been falling apart and coming back together. And it's never been totally satisfying. It's been quite pleasant for a moment or two, and then it's fallen apart again. So why it should ever come together and be totally fulfilling and satisfying is an idea we have in our mind because of our craving and clinging to that which is me and mine. And this me and mine is also a condition based upon the coming together and falling apart of mind and body, which are called me. And since it's never been totally fulfilling and satisfying, which we can easily ascertain if we go through whatever is retained in our memory, why should it ever change in such a way that it will be? Hope springs eternal. And because of that, we do not want to see the truth, we just want to see the hope. Hope is a mental formation not based on reality but on our own imagination. Now if we have good imagination we may be able to put in there some very nice hopes that they never come to pass where it might not deter us from arousing new hopes. So we'll never live in this moment. We'll always live in what we hope is going to happen. One day, when, and if. That's how we live and that's how humanity lives. And because of that, we can't see reality. But if we have practiced satisfactorily, we will have seen this satisfaction quite clearly. And in that, Dukkha will have been our greatest assistant. There is nothing that can assist us more than real personal Dukkha. And the kind of Dukkha that we cannot buy our, our way out of, that we cannot imagine our way out of, that we cannot hope our way out of, but that is just with us. And if we then have had that kind of assistance and have used it to the best advantage, we may actually come to the point in our practice where we recognize the fact that in this world and on this level we won't find what we're looking for only momentarily namely 
the peacefulness, the utter and complete loss of all fear and worry, which can be momentarily found, of course, in the meditative absorptions, but disappear again when the condition of concentration has disappeared. This was actually what the Buddha said after he had learned the eighth jhana from his second meditation teacher. And the second meditation teacher then wanted him to become the teacher and said that he had done everything and this was the end of the spiritual path. The Buddha said, yes, but when I come out of it, I know Dukkha again. It doesn't didn't mean that he necessarily had particularly illness or anything of that nature, but his ability to recognize the most subtle movements within made it possible for him to realize that the moment you come out of even the deepest absorption, there's Dukkha. This is another of the factors which make it essential to be able to have that kind of relief and respite from Dukkha. Because otherwise we'll still be hoping that if we can just get peaceful within, we're going to escape all Dukkha. But if we have, actually experienced it and come out of it again and realize we haven't, that kind of hope is also eliminated. We really need to take every step on this path. All of them are cause and effect. And it's always been put out as if this was a path which took so long that one could never see the end of it. But we need to remember that the fact alone of sitting here in meditation, attending a course such as this, and hearing the words of the Buddha, denotes the fact that we have done this already in innumerable lifetimes. This isn't the first time we've been around. Who knows, we might have been there when the Buddha was speaking and didn't listen. <laughs> but this is definitely not the first time. So it doesn't pay to think about this as if it were a practice and uh, an understanding which is so far removed from oneself that one has hardly a hope to get near it. On the contrary. Even having the opportunity to hear it already makes it quite clear that we are in the vicinity. Whether we know it ourselves, whether we can actually man manifest it now is only the next step. But we should never be sidetracked by 
this particular view, which is also rampant, that this kind of thing is so far removed, we haven't got a hope. It's a wrong view. Even being here knows, we know, this is the way it is. So having had the experience that all of what we know, including the most exalted state in meditation, doesn't have full and complete satisfaction because it has a totality of impermanence in it and cannot be grasped and clung to because it's always disappearing makes it then possible to look for that which doesn't have a condition to support it. Since we don't know anything that doesn't have a condition to support it, we don't know what we're looking for. But we do know that we are not looking for that which we already have had in our consciousness. In other words, we disregard and we can turn our back on all of that which we know already because it is quite clear to us that there must be something else which we don't know. If we use our concentration ability which we have sharpened through the practice to the point where we also realize that all movement in the mind no matter how subtle is not satisfactory. We will look for that which has no movement in it. And the mind can come to what I call a still point, a point of stillness which is one single mind moment. At that moment, there's neither the observer nor the observed. And this is the, from a technical standpoint, the difference between the meditative absorptions and the path moment. These are technical terms which we need to understand eventually, but we can do it without knowing the terminology. But since quite a number of people learn all the terminology and not the experience, it's often helpful for them to get the terminology explained. This still point doesn't have an observer in it. It only has the observed. And there's a very interesting um, guideline by the Buddha which concerns just that. There was a religious teacher in the time of the Buddha who had been diligently practicing for over 30 years and had, of course, come to the conclusion that he was enlightened because obviously he was more enlightened than his students. So one can easily get the idea one must be enlightened. And one night a deva appeared to him. A deva is an otherworldly being, but 
it doesn't have to be thought that this deva was out there sitting there it can be thought to mean that it appeared in his consciousness which is more likely and this deva said you know said you think you're enlightened but you don't even know what it means to be enlightened and so this person became extremely agitated and said well what am I to do if I don't even know and the deva said well go and see the Buddha and uh, so immediately in the middle of the night person got up and started out to try and find the Buddha and inquired here and there and found out what village the Buddha was in and traveled through the night and found the village the next morning and then went to the house that the Buddha was supposed to be staying in and was told that the Buddha had gone on arms round with his arms bowl to get his meal and that he should wait but he was so uh, excited and anxious about this uh, finding out what it means to be enlightened that he didn't want to wait so he followed the Buddha and finally found him along the street and uh, prostrated and said sir I must ask you a question and the Buddha said you've come at the wrong time and uh, but this man was so anxious about getting the answer that he said but I must ask you and the Buddha again said but you've got to come at the wrong time I'm on arms round I'll answer your question in the afternoon but he wouldn't be deterred he asked him again and the tradition is that if you ask your teacher three times he's got to answer so the Buddha said all right then what is it you want to know and he said sir what does it mean to become enlightened the Buddha said to you the seen is only the seen the heard is only the heard the cognized is only the cognized so he thanked the Buddha very kindly and wandered off and in the afternoon when the Buddha was taking a walk with his monks they found him lying by the roadside dead a runaway uh, cow had killed him now cows are sacred in India and they can do what they like and um, the Buddha saw the dead uh, person lying then he said he became enlightened before his death with just knowing that one sentence and what it meant at, to the person who had practiced a long time was that there was no experiencer or experience with a differentiation there's only the two that become one only the experience the seen becomes the seen there's no seer the heard becomes the heard there's no hearer and the cognized in the mind just becomes the cognized there's no thinker nobody there be nobody and he understood that immediately and went away and practiced it and had that experience this is a moment which I am pleased to call the still point because it does have that appearance of being totally still no movement in it because when there's only the experience there is nobody that's observing it and with that 
comes the willingness to completely let go. It has to be a certain willingness, an ability, a determination, but also that deep inner resonance. If I don't let go, I'll never find out what it means to be really happy. It's compared in the Visuddhimagga with that very interesting uh, symbolism which is quite easy to understand and can be extremely helpful. That's what these analogies and symbolisms are meant for to facilitate our understanding because we're trying to understand something that we don't have any notion of. We don't know what it's like to live without being me. We don't even know what it's like to be able to let go of me. So we try to understand something that we have no way of knowing. So an analogy is helpful. Just like Punya gave the analogy to Sariputta of the seven relay coaches, which finally the last one arrives at the palace gate, and one couldn't say rightly that it's the last one that has brought one there. One couldn't have got there without the others. The analogy used is this, that there is a stream with two banks, and on one bank of the stream is a huge tree, very strong tree, on which a rope is tied. A person grabs hold of that rope, swings across the stream, and falls down on the other side. Now, the strong tree is the insight we have gained. The rope is materiality, corporality. The impetus that we need is our practice. So we have the movement of our practice to use as a springboard to grab a hold of this rope and because we have enough impetus we can swing across and let go. That rope being me. Letting go on the other side. Letting go on the other side also has with it a sort of wobbling because if one lets fall from a rope, one doesn't have a secure footing right away, which shows itself in the fact that having done that, one feels a little disorientated at first. One isn't on the same bank anymore. Having come across there and having let go of everything, the person then gets up, finds its footing, and wanders off. Exactly the same person as before, but the experience of having let go brings with it 
in the next mind moment an enormous sense of relief. Sometimes people say they feel reborn. Sometimes they say they feel like an enormous burden has been lifted. Sometimes they say that everything looks different for a little while. In any case, that swinging across on that rope of materiality and the letting go of both corporality and mentality is one single mind moment where there's only the experience and no observer. It just is. After that, and it's called Magga path, path moment. After that comes what is called the fruit moment. And that fruit moment is that feeling which I've already described. And it lasts two at the most three mind moments. Total relief, total relief, total peace. This is it. It feels as if the world has turned upside down for a moment and only oneself is standing straight up. Only two at the most three mind moments. After that, one has to find one's footing again because a very significant change has occurred. One can never again think of oneself in the same way one has before. Now this is a very important. One can never again think of oneself in the same way as one has before. Unfortunately, one feels again the same way as one has before. But the knowledge is embedded so strongly that the path to Nibbana is now open. That's why this particular moment is called stream entry. One has entered the stream to Nirvana. One can no longer be deterred. Never again can anybody convince one that that's not what one ought to be doing. It doesn't mean that one will neglect one's duties and responsibilities. Nobody who practices the Dhamma correctly, will ever neglect duties or responsibilities. It is just not part of one's moral conduct. The path to Nibbana is open and the benefits are numerous. The first, what are called, first three fetters are removed. The Buddha explained that we have ten fetters which bind us. Bind us to our limited view, the limited view which is me, you, and you, you, me and you and mine and yours. And these ten fetters need to be removed slowly, step by step. Now at this point, when we have jumped across this stream, we have removed three. 
And the first one is the most significant, the wrong view of self. But that's it. We never longer have the wrong view of self. We know that self is a mistake. But we can only feel it when we remember to resurrect the feeling of the fruit moment. The fruit moment feeling can be resurrected at will and needs to be resurrected as much and as often as possible because only that makes it possible to go the second step. The second factor which is removed is a belief that rituals can bring enlightenment. It doesn't mean one can't perform rituals, but one will probably be much more sparing with them than people who still believe in them. And one will not believe that they are intrinsic to that letting go. They are not intrinsic to anything other than an adherence to certain traditions. If it is a tradition which brings about moral conduct, they certainly have their value. They do not have any value as far as enlightenment is concerned. They can be detrimental if the belief in them is too strong. This is removed at this time. And Doubt and uncertainty is removed. Now, doubt and uncertainty most likely was already removed before that because one can't practice wholeheartedly if one is still doubting whether that what one is doing is really the most important thing to do. One doesn't become a stream enterer by accident, only by effort and by full confidence. But here, the confidence is so complete that the Buddha said, now it will never be a hindrance again. It's a confidence, first of all, in one's own ability. One has had the confidence in oneself, but also in the past. Nothing else has the priority and the importance. And one will be very much inclined after that experience to remove obstacles to one's practice. Remove them in such a way that they are no longer impeding one's progress. Obstacles which may be created through one's other interests or through some situation which is not conducive to practice. The confidence is in the Buddha, in the teaching, and a complete heartfelt giving oneself to that pathway which is surpassing all other interests that one can have in this life. One will quite naturally keep the precepts without 
so much difficulty as one may have had in the past because they sound quite simple I will explain them tonight but they are not as simple as they sound and you often give people quite a bit of difficulty and also it is said that one can have no longer period to become fully enlightened other than seven lifetimes however it can all be done in one lifetime in the Buddha's time it was often known that people did it in one sitting (laughs) (laughs) but then of course they had the Buddha to help them it is that which I described as a safe spot yesterday one can no longer fall into the consciousness of the lower realms now with that we can look at these realms Buddha described in his cosmology that there are 31 realms of existence of which the human one is the fifth one from the bottom that knowledge might take away some of the surprise why it doesn't work on this globe it can't we are far too near in consciousness to the four lower realms there are 26 realms above doesn't mean that we have to go through these realms it's not like a university where you have to pass from one class to the next it just means that our consciousness has the ability to raise itself to higher realms and fall into lower realms the human consciousness that strictly stays with the worldly conditions as we all know them and have had our fill of them and are still going to get our fill of them that kind of consciousness is a fifth one from the bottom and cannot possibly bring satisfaction there's nothing in it that will really have a completeness about it so with that safe spot we are secure from falling into a lower type of consciousness the lowest one has a name of hell which is familiar to us then there is the consciousness of what is called the hungry ghosts which is a ghost realm we might say then we have a consciousness of the titans which are constantly fighting with each other which we could say is a war consciousness hot war or cold war arguments or enmity a war consciousness and then the uh, one directly below us animal which is instinctive instinctive consciousness which is very very akin to ours so we are secured from falling into those by having found this safe spot this safe spot the beginning of the noble path everything else where the methods the practice now we have gained a foothold on the noble path 
And with that foothold, we will naturally have no other priorities. We will naturally also be compelled to take care of worldly things. But interestingly enough, the higher we go, the less necessity there is to look after worldly things. That doesn't mean that an enlightened one doesn't eat or drink. doesn't mean that at all. But it means that with the higher realms of consciousness, those things are looked after naturally and as a matter of course. And it is often said that an arahant, an enlightened one, has to live in a protected environment because of the fact that the life, hold on life is tenuous. And if one wants to protect such a person from disappearing from this globe, there has to be quite a bit of care exercised for such a person. The tenuous hold on life, not because the body is sick or anything, but because there is no clinging to it. Life is as long as it is, and if it isn't, it isn't. The clinging has gone, so the hold on it is tenuous. And as the hold on it is tenuous, there are usually people around who try to um, look after such a person so that they, um, they can stick around a while to help others, which is what an arahant would naturally do. Maybe at this point in time I'll mention the other fetters just for interest's sake and maybe also those other steps also for interest's sake because our practice, first of all, leads us to stream entry and once being there, we'll discuss the rest again. No? The next step is called once returner, then non-returner, and then arahant. The first one in Pali is Sotapati, Sakadagami, Anagami, Arahant. And the once returner, as the name implies, has to come back once more. Not necessarily to the human realm, but often does. For the simple reason that there is a desire to help. So the once returner often does return to the human realm, also for the reason that there is a good opportunity here because of all this dukkha that's so prevalent. The non-returner not, does not return to the human realm. He can't or she can't or it can't. I think it would be right, wouldn't it? Um, the uh, consciousness is much too far advanced and the rest of the work is done in one of the Brahma realms, the four highest realms, the consciousness of Brahma, the God consciousness. Now there are ten fetters and on this first step we remove the first three. So we're left with seven. It's very interesting to note that the last five are only removed from non-returner to arahant. 
So you can see that the first three steps are really not such an enormous undertaking as the last one. The last one is the big one and extremely difficult and very rarely done. In the Buddha's time, there's supposed to have been 1,500 arahants. It's impossible to know whether this is so or not because all the derivatives of 500 used to mean many, many, many. So whether 1,500 is a correct number or not, we don't know. But anyway, a few more than today. The once-returner does not remove any of the fetters. It just produces greed and hate. It's a very nice thing to do, but what it immediately brings to mind is, can you imagine the amount of greed and hate in the human realm if you have to become a once-returner to even reduce it? One should never again be surprised at the mess that exists on this planet. The mess that exists in one's own heart and the mess that exists in everybody else's heart. It just is. There's no way until we practice to the point of once returner, which means another jump across this river. Having done it once, not that difficult. One knows what to do. However, because it reduces hate and greed and because it has to be done almost from a standing position, it's also not that easy. The practice continues, but the practice needs to deepen to the point where that feeling of being without this person becomes strong enough to make it possible to take another jump across. Because the stream entry gets engrossed in worldly conditions and affairs over and over again and has also a tendency to forget. The stream entry is in the kindergarten of the noble path. The kindergarten experience. And kids in kindergarten keep forgetting what they're supposed to do. And the same with the stream enter. He knows very well, or she knows very well what's going on, but keeps forgetting, because there's too much going on. So, we ha- the practice continues, and that feeling has to be resurrected over and over again. And as the feeling is resurrected to the point of becoming the most important thing to have as one's constant companion, the next jump is being done. That time, the jump, we could say, as an analogy, just goes a little bit further, that's all. Having been a little more practiced in jumping, we can jump a little further. Or we could say that it is the same major at university, only in the second semester we already know a little more. So while we're being, still have the exams on the same subject, they are a little more difficult and we have a little more insight into the subject because we've done it once before. So the jump is a little further and thereby, by that little further, the opening up of 
that which is otherworldly, super-mundane, becomes a little clearer. In the first jump, the super-mundane has not really opened up yet. The, mom- the feeling of no self has, but the super-mundane hasn't. The second time it does open up. And because of that, heat and gr- uh, sorry, hate and greed is reduced. Now, hate is reduced to irritation, and greed is reduced to liking. It's still worldly, but we are solidly on the path. The super mundane, which opens up to the view, the inner view, of this person, shows that there is an unconditioned, a matrix of existence out of which all arises. The underlying primordial ocean, which has nothing in it, which does not arise because of wanting to arise. And that super mundane view opens up for the one's returner who then sees that within this primordial all, there's no need to arise again. And that makes it possible to continue the path, because the once returner will arise again. So again, the practice continues to, continues to come to that point. The non-returner now loses, finally, hate and greed. So in order to be without hate and greed, one has to be a non-returner. If we can remember that, we'll never be surprised again at anything. Ever again. No matter what it is. To be a non-returner is an enormous step on the spiritual path. There are not many of those around. Of course, more than Arahants, but still, not many. So, hate and greed is rampant. It's everywhere. And why is it? Not because we are intrinsically so terrible or so bad. Because we are intrinsically connected with this idea. This is me. The illusion, the moha, brings about the hate and the greed. And only the removal of illusion removes it that's all it's really simple isn't it takes a bit of doing the non-returner is left with five fetters of course the two most important ones are gone but five fetters are left it's very interesting because it is compared to this that the Illusion of self clings to the non-returner like the scent clings to a flower. Now, a scent and a flower can hardly be separated. You've got to get rid of the flower. You can't get rid of the scent. So it clings to that person. And because of that, there is still ignorance. The word ignorance has a specific meaning in Buddhist terminology, namely 
the word or the meaning of ignoring the final liberating truth of Nibbana. That's all it means. It doesn't mean that we're ignorant of anything in particular. We're ignoring the final liberating truth. Ignorance is there. And with that ignorance is what is called Manu, which is translated as conceit. But it doesn't mean that such a person is conceited. It means there is conceiving. Now, we're all very familiar with conceiving. We're constantly conceiving. We're discriminating, judging, and we're conceiving of something. Now, this person has that left. This conceit, this conceiving, is a conceiving of this very subtle and tenuous idea of self. That person would not think, I am a non-returner. But such a person might think, I need to help all other beings. Who is that that's helping? So there is this very subtle difference between a fully liberated one and one that still has that um, condition to deal with. So there's conceit. Manu, which is that conceiving of self. There's ignorance. And it is said that such a person still plays around at times with the idea of being reborn in one of the highest realms where there is no dukkha. That's why they have such a hard time getting enlightened. They have no dukkha whatsoever and all wishes are fulfilled by just having the wish which is called having the wish-fulfilling gem. Some of the Buddha statues that come from Burma are depicted with a, in the left hand, right hand, in the right hand, a little, like a little seed, the fingers holding on to a little seed that's supposed to be the wish-fulfilling gem. Because in Burma, very often the Buddha statue is depicted as having just come down from the Deva realms. And that's why they have jewels on the uh, robes and so forth. Um, so a person who's a non-returner is still playing around with those ideas at times, not continuously. But there might be nice to spend a bit of time in the Brahma realms or the highest Deva realms because there's plenty of Dukkha here and maybe it'd be nice to have no Dukkha at all for a while. The Buddha said it's totally useless. And there is still restlessness. So it's interesting to note that. Because the whole path has not been done, there is still that restlessness of doing something else. It's not quite completed. Now can you imagine the kind of restlessness that ordinary people have? I mean, just look at the freeway. Or don't look at the freeway. I mean, the restlessness is just unimaginable. One's got to go from here to there in order to find that what one hasn't got. Well, even the non-returners still have a little bit of that. These five are only removed for the Arahant. In order to go this pathway, having done the first step of jumping across, we need to resurrect the feeling that we had after the event, which is, again, 
the understood experience. First the experience, then the understanding of it. Another thing which needs to be done is that a person who has taken any of those steps need to evaluate their defilements and the removal of their defilements, which is called the reviewing knowledge. It is an introspection into evaluating to see whether one has changed, whether one doesn't react in the same way anymore, whether there's more clarity, more wisdom, and less emotion. Now, same, all the same thing applies to any meditator. Anything that has been valuable and needs to be done again needs to be resurrected in the mind so that we can do it again, what I've been calling recapitulation. And the reviewing needs to be going on all the time. Which are my impediments, my hindrances? Which ones have already changed a bit? All of this applies to anyone that is meditating and of course in particular applies to these states but it's not um, specific to them it should be done by everyone the reason I have explained this is not particularly because we're going to do this this afternoon or anything like that but because of the completion of this particular discourse which comes to the completion at that time when we have the purification of knowledge and vision which is the last one of those seven vehicles or coaches to ride in the seventh one which then takes us to that doorway of the palace which we can then open and enter into this palace which means that we can take those steps which bring us into a rebirth or a new birth or rather say new birth we get born as a noble one a person who is an ordinary human being is called a puttajana a worldling a person who has been able to take the step across into stream entry is called a noble one, an Arya. It's a noble person because of the fact that they have entered upon the noble path. That would also indicate that if we really want a noble friend, we should try and find someone who has entered into the noble path. If we have viewpoints and opinions about that, it may not be helpful. The Buddha said, one only knows a person truly after having listened to them for many, many years and lived with them for a long time. And many, many years and a long time is described by the commentators as 12 years. Whether that's enough, I don't know. But that's having listened to them for a long time and lived with them for a long time. So if we have viewpoints and opinions about this person isn't, this person isn't, and 
maybe they have and maybe they haven't I think we'd be better off to drop all that and just have the great advantage of trying to be together with such people who have the same ideas about priorities in life I think a person who has practiced and is willing to be a friend can be a noble friend to us our opinions and viewpoints about other people's attainments are usually based on our own attainments and if we think that they're not well it just means we're not and if we think they are it usually means that we hope they are so it's just as well to forget the whole thing and try to get on with one's own practice whatever anybody else is doing is wonderful for them may they be well and happy and attain Nibbana within a very short time the only thing that matters is what we ourselves are doing each one has to do it for themselves and as we get that clear in our mind that it's entirely up to us to do it we may also find that we have the ability to do it the strength comes from being independent as long as we try to hang on to somebody else's hand we think we need that hand but when we stand on our own two feet and say well I can do it the strength comes to us we have that enormous inner strength which makes enlightenment possible if we didn't the whole of the Buddha's teaching would be in vain he would have been wasting his time and his life it's highly unlikely that he did we've all got that ability and since we all have an inner yearning and an inner direction that is leading us onward what we need is a clear cut idea what is important and what isn't and I think that will probably help us the most in not getting sidetracked all the time which happens to most people right, that's enough on this topic any questions comments Well, 
Well, I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to connect up, but anyway, an experience is that what happens. The understanding comes after. So if you have a meditative absorption, it's an experience. And after you come out of it, out of it you know what it was. So first you have to have the experience, and then you have to have the understanding. Mind and body are two. Body dies, mind carries on with its karmic resultants. Since there is no me, there is no me being reborn. Karmic resultants are being reborn. They are totally impersonal. They have nothing to do with this person. Since we are craving and clinging to the idea of me, we have this hope and this prayer for immortality. Let me be here again. If I can't stay around, maybe I can come again. Since I've never been here in the first place, there's no reason why we should be here again. Karmic resultants are being reborn. Karmic resultants have a certain influence upon us, naturally, particularly on the situation into which we get born. That's the greatest influence they have. And as we go along in this life, we make a lot of new karmic resultants. What else would you like to connect up? Well, that uh, would be unfortunate. Um, Mind has four parts, and the word consciousness in that aspect means sense consciousness. Hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, smelling, and thinking, which is also in Pali Vijnana, and that is part of mind. There are other consciousnesses which have exactly the same word, unfortunately, in Pali, also in English. One is rebirth consciousness, one is possibly to be used in English as the word awareness. And the uh, jhana factors do elevate our awareness ability, and they put us on an awareness which is different from everyday awareness. If one doesn't know where one is, the meditation, unfortunately, isn't happening. One's got to know where one is. Can you meditate? Surely. Certainly. So if you trust your breath, keep on. And then sometimes, you know, we get into a The idea is this, that it's selfish, that way that's the way I've heard it mentioned, it is selfish to try to become fully enlightened because that person then, who's fully enlightened, will not reappear in this world and therefore um, deny the world the uh, ex- existence of an enlightened being. This is the selfishness. 
um, it doesn't have any uh, real um, truth to it. First of all, one could say, well, the Buddha became enlightened. So was he really selfish? Or did he pass on the teaching? And this is what actually happened, that he did become enlightened and passed on the teaching. But the strength of the enlightened mind is a factor which remains. It is a natural resource. And if we can actually connect with it, it will be of the greatest benefit. You can compare it, if you want an analogy, and one should use analogies as much as possible, to plugging the electric plug into the wall. So there's, uh, that other idea is not uh, quite, uh, doesn't really have any basis on it, to it. Yes. You had your hand up, yes. Well, that's it. The human consciousness has the ability to go the gamut from hell to the highest Brahma. Yeah, when the health consciousness and the war consciousness. Yes. And trying to get out of that one can try and remove oneself again. Yes. We have the ability to go the gamut of it all. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a chance at enlightenment. <laughs> yes. Said that in a course like this, we would be half dozen so people would get absorbed in, in the Vajrayana, and yet arahants are extremely rare. What, what sort of percentage is there for students? I have no idea. <laughs> it's also quite small. <laughs> Again, very small. Yes. I, but I can't give exact figures right. <laughs> because I don't know all of them. It's not as uncommon as one might think. It's um, it's not common, of course not. It's far more common to be materialistically inclined. But when we take that minority of meditators which exist in the world, take those as a criteria of numbers because they're already a very small number the meditators and from these meditators take that small number that can actually become concentrated and then see the priority of the pathway and then actually follow it through um, you will find stream entries yes no doubt about it um, here and there and uh, also it depends not strictly on the teaching. The teaching can be helpful. But it very often also depends on one's own karmic residue. But the karmic residue also has something to do with the fact that one actually follows through on this. I mean, I have taught thousands of people by now. And how many have followed through? Very few. They all like it when they get taught. But they like it better at home. <laughs> yes. with, with great determination. And sometimes 
with the cost to themselves of money, time, and uh, many other things which are deemed to be important. Really costing them their their time, it's costing them money, it's costing them uh, uh, energy, because it is the most important thing. But the results are incomparable to any other results. But that one has to take on face value until one can prove it to oneself. Hmm? Yes. What about people who don't meditate but seem to be more highly evolved than yourself? What do you make of that? Well, first of all, they they don't necessarily have to do a... Um, like an organized meditation. Some of these people, and I've met them uh, amongst farmers. Uh, I've lived on a farm for many, many years. Um, They are very often, a lot of time, they are alone by themselves, and they contemplate. And they come out with some real truth which has come out of their contemplation. And also they have decided that they want to help others. They want to be good people. And so their evolution is along the virtue, their own virtue, and it's along gaining some wisdom out of their own experiences. It doesn't necessarily have to come to the point of letting go of that self-illusion, but they may maybe people who can be noble friends and can be very helpful and they haven't had any formal training and I have met up with people also who have spontaneously uh, done the jhanas without knowing that they were meditating without knowing that such a thing was an established pathway and thought themselves to be totally mad and uh, tried actually, some of them tried not to do it, and others did it because it made them happy, but never dared tell anybody. So even that is happening. And then I've met up with people, very few of course, who've had spontaneous stream entry without any teaching whatsoever. And that, I mean, that's extremely rare, totally rare. And they, they've, without teaching, they've found, uh, without a teacher, they find themselves at loggerheads with the ordinary world. Find it very difficult to um, cope with it because they don't know what's going on. So all of this is possible. It's much better if one has a teacher and an organized teaching where it says, look, this is fine what you're doing. It's all right. Do it again. Might make life much easier. Anything else? Yes. In the world of the arts, many performers speak about three seconds in time where they're really just what they are doing, they're just dancing or eating. Is that the taste or something? It's very strong mindfulness, which uh, cuts out the observer almost totally, but it certainly isn't the still point because there's still something happening. But it prepares a person, if they then wish to meditate, to become concentrated easily. 
it's a very good pro- uh, preparation very helpful <laughs>